Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, the show dedicated to the private investor, and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. We want to show you how to cross the divide from residential investing over to commercial property investing. Through interviews, tips and lessons learned, we share experiences of investing and give you the inspiration, knowledge and confidence to enjoy this great cash flowing strategy. So let's get started. Welcome back to the CPI podcast and thank you so much for joining us. We have a great guest lined up for you today with lots of insights to share. I actually met Natalie Shaw through our CPI Members Network, which is a great plug for our commercial property network and why you should consider joining us, of course. She has been an avid podcast listener and I'm honoured she agreed to join me to share some of her knowledge and experiences and how we can apply those to our property businesses. We had a really insightful and impactful conversation based around risk for our businesses. And if you're anything like me, when you've got a small portfolio, you kind of overlook some of those risks. But the bigger your portfolio gets, the more you realise you have to lose. And I've become more and more conscious of that as we've grown. But it's actually really important to consider these things from day one. I'm sure you have considered some of these risks, of course, and you've maybe either part them, ignored them, decided to deal with them later, or you've weighed up in your mind the likelihood of a particular event happening and calculated the risk is maybe something you're willing to take right now. And as you'll hear, Natalie comes from a strong financial background where risk is a key element of everyday decisions. And some of those learnings can be implemented in our own private property businesses. This was such an interesting discussion that we could have included so much more content And actually, we've managed to divide it into two instalments for you. It took a lot of effort on my part, I have to say, to not discuss lots of tangents. I think there's so much we could learn from Natalie. The first episode is structured around the following risks. The lack of risk assessment, using the wrong numbers, debt management and key man documents. I.e. what happens if something happens to you and you can no longer carry out your normal functions in the business? What happens to the business? And these things people often think about, but don't often put in plans to deal with them. So we're going to cover those four today. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. And today I'm delighted to say we've got Natalie Shaw with us. Say hi, Natalie. Hi. Great to have you here. Um, Today we're going to be talking about getting serious in your business. Um, I I certainly fall into the category where I, I like to get started. And I'll tidy things up later. And, and I think a lot of business people do that. Um, and as you grow your business bigger, the risk to your business gets bigger purely from the fact that you've got more assets there to, to deal with and to look after. And at some point, we have to grow up. 
and and Natalie, you've got uh, an amazing background in finance and risk management, and that, that's where we're going to go today. Is just talk through some of the things that maybe investors that haven't had a business background but are now investing effectively in a business need to consider some risk that they've maybe not quite covered off or ignored. <laughs> you you talked to me about this before and just some of the things that you've come across where in in grown-up world they are a regular part of due diligence but actually for investors it's something that we've just not really tuned into so I'm really looking forward to the conversation um Natalie maybe you could just give us a bit of your background and how we got to this point sure um thank you so much for having me on first of all um I'm a I'm a active participant in your inner circle which I'm loving it's added so much value to me I you know meet the people that I've met and actually being able to do deals so thoroughly recommend your inner circle so I came to property uh, full-time about three years ago I had a 25-year history in investment banking so I ran an equities business um, I've worked in all parts of capital markets I was lastly on the board of our investment business. So that comes with a whole heap of responsibilities. And that kind of background gives you a very strong understanding of governance, of risk management, risk appetite, um, and most importantly, process. Now, it kind of, whenever I talk about this, and, and I've done a couple of these things, I always feel like the most boring person in the room. Everyone <laughs> is passionate about their business. But then when it comes to paperwork, it's like, oh, no, 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 that's why I left the rat race. I don't want to do paperwork. I don't want to increase bureaucracy in my business or red tape. And they kind of abandon everything, yeah. you know, sort of, oh, I'm free from all the shackles. Um, and what that means is I think people take quite a reactionary approach to risk management. And so when I meet people at, at all these property events and all the property meets and stuff, the sort of hairs on the back of my head sort of prickle when when I hear some of their stories and you know it's not my place to get involved but I'm really happy to share this information I don't think it's wrong to professionalize your business to 100% to grow up yeah, yeah makes you much more um sellable makes you much more investable more importantly a lot more comfort for any investment that you're trying to get into your business so yeah I come from it as always, the most boring person in the room. And I make no apologies for that. I'm a spreadsheet girl. I'm a paperwork girl. Don't like getting my hands dirty, but I feel I've got something to say on these topics. Yeah, I, I, this is not going to be a boring podcast. It is going to be a serious podcast, though, to a point, yeah. because um, it's it's an area that people do tend to leave in the cupboard, in the drawer, as you say, and I'll deal with that some other time. And they may, in fact, sometimes they don't even recognise it at all. And we're going to go through... A presentation effectively that you've put together and sent over, which I thought was great. We had to share it's why we're having this podcast. And some of those points I recognize from, you know, either past or even present thinking, hmm, I'm not sure I do that properly yet. <laughs> so you, you put this presentation together. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about it rather than show it. But but yeah. you've presented this to property investors effectively. Uh, just in a couple of groups. I don't yeah. do it on a, on a grand scale like you, Jerry. I used to have a business a long time ago when I had a child. I took a year out of banking and I, I set up a, a business called the Virtual Non-Executive Director, the VNED. And it's for small SMEs, basically. You go and sit in their business and say, oh, maybe you should do that. Oh, maybe you should think about yeah. this. You know, so you act as like a non-executive director unofficially. So I kind of do that unofficially for a few property entrepreneurs that I know. Um, 
and just you know trying to hold people's hand through the process and stuff so yeah i kind right. of what what i what i did in this in and we'll talk about is it's really i kind of found eight areas that i think most people fall down on and i will be the first to hold my hand up that I wrote this thing and I don't necessarily always do everything on the list, all right? I'm the first to hold my hand up. But if we talk about this stuff and any, any one point resonates with people and we make people's businesses better, especially in, you know, the sort of economic turmoil that's coming, um, and I can talk about, you know, uh, real estate economics and, and the impact on commercial property that the interest rate cycle is going to have, but we'll maybe do that another time. But I think it's so important that, you know, if people take one or two things away, that to me is the most important. Yeah. That, that's that's the whole name of this podcast. It's all about giving people tips and things just to move their, their business forward. And Natalie, it might be best that we just give a little bit more context to this in terms of your own um, investment strategy or strategies. There's even there's properties that you've you've been talking about selling. I didn't know you you had in your portfolio. You, you've got a really quite a diverse portfolio. It'd be quite interesting just to quickly tell people roughly what sort of sectors you're involved in. Oh golly, okay. Um, <laughs> so I have I have some you know normal buy to lets in London, just very boring buy to lets. I have a big student portfolio. So quite across the UK, mainly centered in Nottingham. And that was more, I'm an analyst by background. And I basically analyzed all 77 university cities and found the uh, parameters for Nottingham were the, the most favorable in the UK. Um, so I had Nottingham, I have a few in Edinburgh, Bristol, uh, Manchester, but student portfolio. And that was where I first started this journey. Then I decided that I also, over COVID, uh, picked up quite a lot of commercial property because to me that a lot of it was mispriced. And if you're buying in the right area, commercial property is, I think you're getting very, very good deal. Even though I think values will fall considerably over the next year, I still think there are bargains out there. And um, what else? I have a few uh, holiday properties and... Um, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. I, 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 have, I have one really interesting thing, which was more a paperwork exercise than anything. And I did this with I, some very clever people. I think one of the things on your journey is don't try and do everything yourself. You know, if you find some clever people, really partner with them. Because and this was we, we bought a whole load of freeholds out of a Ponzi scheme. Um, and these are hotels, care homes. And the whole thing was a disaster. It was one of those guaranteed return investment schemes buy a care home room and we'll make you rich yep. you know, we'll pay you 10 percent, and then so hundreds and hundreds of titles guaranteed. over one building or and yeah. the whole thing blew up it was a ponzi scheme the guy ran off with all the money so we bought freeholds from the receivers and we're currently working through it at the moment but that's a really interesting exercise but only not for the faint-hearted only when you find very clever people way cleverer than me, lawyers who, who can sort all this stuff out. So that's quite an interesting exercise as well. So I like, I'm a paperwork person. I think, you know, you and I were discussing. I like paperwork. I'm not great at sort of building and deciding on light switches and plumbing and this, that and the other. I try and shy away from that. I try and do everything from my spreadsheet. Yeah, fantastic. That's great. Thanks for that. Um, right, let's get into these okay. eight, well, they're not steps, eight areas that, we need to talk about it. it's quite interesting when we were going through the list before it's like um, each of these probably deserves a podcast <laughs> so we're doing the best we can right to get this all into this show 
Um, but the first, the first one up, and you were trying to uh, forgive me if I'm uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you were trying to put these in order of what you thought were the most relevant slash important to our audience. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, it's all about. I come up from this sort of pro, uh, approach that what I see is everyone takes a very reactionary approach to risk, to things that go wrong, to COVID, to uh, interest rate rises. Everyone's very reactionary and it increases your stress levels more than anything. And I find it can force you into taking bad decisions sometimes. Oh God, you know, okay, I, I've got a cash flow crisis. I need to sell something and you end up selling it at a cheaper price because you 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 need the money, you need the cash flow. So it can force you into making bad decisions. So I think the first one really is, I find people don't have risk management. They don't know what risk management is. They kind of, some of it is common sense. They have it in the back of their mind, but they don't take a very structured approach to it. Now, I'm not talking about hiring a risk officer, which a big company would do it. But I think we start off this kind of discussion we're talking about poor risk management and what risk management actually is. And literally, I can lecture on this for a week, so I'm trying not to bore people. <laughs> but <laughs> um, there's a technique. It's called the Delphi technique. That's irrelevant. You don't really need to know it. But it's all about when you have either a project or you look at your business or you look at your personal life. Every, if you write down all the things that could go wrong, assess the impact that could have, and then have a quick action plan of what would happen? What would I do if this happened? Or what can I do now to avert this? That's risk management. Right? And it's just, you know, literally spending maybe a day, taking a day out and just writing everything you can. And, and there's lots of, you know, if you, you look at it in categories. So you have your, your business. So the internal risk. Internal risk is something you can control. Um, you have non-business risk. So external risk, things you can't control, but you need to plan for. Interest rates rises, perfect. Ma macroeconomics, yeah. Regulatory changes, absolutely. You know, EPCs, you know, the fact that quite a, I was reading a horrible statistic in Property Investor News yesterday that like something like 65% of landlords don't know about the EPC changes and the yeah. impact that's going to have on their portfolio. That's an external risk that you have to plan for. And then there's the financial. So if you think about it, internal risks, external risks and financial risks. Right. So that's kind of the framework within that. There's a whole load of stuff. And, and I can I can provide if people are interested, I can provide people a list just to uh, refresh their memories. But, you know, you look at categories like your actual housing. What the, I mean by that is the buildings that you own. Right. What are the risks with that? What are your tenant risks? Right. Especially at the moment, you really need to be focusing on your tenant risks and, you know, whether they're going to be able to afford to pay your rent. Right. Especially, you know, things will will start to crunch over the next six months. You've got admin risk, market risk, i.e. what's going wrong with the area. If you bought a massive building next to Doncaster Airport because you're supplying, you know, you're supplying warehousing for um, uh, for freight, you might be worried of it at the moment because if they shut the airport, there's going to be no need for your warehouse. So. You know, market risk, you've got operational risk, compliance, strategy. There's a whole load of sections. Once you've written that, three-step action plan. Okay, very easy. So you've identified it. That's your first list. Then you assess the impact, right? High, medium, low impact, right, to my business. High, medium, low probability of this happening. 
And that can give you a score. And that allows you to actually compare the risk of two projects. Should I do this project or this one? Oh, well, let's look at the risks surrounding it. It just gives you a framework for it. But your action, when it comes to risk management, you've got four things. Um, you either avoid the risk altogether. Oh, you know, that area is too risky. I'm just not going to invest there. You reduce it somehow by careful planning. I buy a building. Right. I'm going to make this EPCB rated now when I'm doing the renovations, because then I'm at my 2030 commercial property EPC that level. All right. So I'm going to do that now. So I've completely reduced my regulatory risk on it. You transfer it by transferring risk. I mean, things like insurance. So if there's a fire in my property, I've insured for it. So I've transferred the risk. Okay. Now it's never one for one transference, but we, we can talk about that. So you transfer it or at the end of the day, you just accept it. And accepting risk is really why we're in property. We're in property because we are being paid to invest money. I.e., Our return is paying us to invest the money rather than putting in a risk free rate like your government gilts or in a bank deposit. We're being paid an excess return to take the risk of buying property. So we're accepting a certain amount of risk. The risk is being transferred to us effectively. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're accepting yeah. it. So those are the four things. So just taking a day out in once a year, just to look at your risk um, profile and check that you're not, you know, you're not doing anything undue. And sometimes it's good just to share this with someone, you know, sort of, you know, do it with another business owner because then you can be check and balance with each other and make sure you're making the right decisions i probably do most of that and most people when they're assessing projects do that but they tend to do it in their head mm-hmm. um and you you go through the process and it might be when looking at best case and worst case being the optimist you might be looking more at the best case and the, the worst case might be kind of where we are right now with the property. Maybe there's no there's no income or something, but actually there are more risks than just that. Mm-hmm. And what, you, what you're really talking about is having a more structured approach. Mm-hmm. And interesting, you said there about, you know, do you have a, a list of, effectively a framework that you use. And maybe if that is possible, we might share that with listeners that, that yeah. want to reach out for that. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, so that's really interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people would, would resonate with that yeah i do check risks i do think about for instance if we're looking at service accommodation i do look at where the 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 holiday sector is in that area if there's a lot of visitors i do look at whether there's enough um blue collar workers or whatever it is that they're they're looking for they think their target market is but then there are other risks that as you say are out with their control and maybe not thinking about what if it shuts down how much reliance is there on that one industry and what happens if it does? Is there a plan B, C, and D? Very interesting. We'll come on to it when we talk about information provenance later on. But people tend to do secondary research rather than doing primary research themselves. So they read newspapers and they read statistics that are published. So they say, oh, yeah, look, there's loads of holiday makers in this. Look at the air DNA stats for, you know, Cornwall. That's amazing. But the problem is air DNA stats are based on history. And what they should be reading is all the stuff from the local councils and reading the council meeting minutes to see what the growing pressure is for double tax, you know, for taxing Airbnb properties and things like that in the area. So it's it's almost taking a next level, not just believing that, but we'll talk about that in a... In yeah, we'll come back to that one later yeah. on, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I totally hear you. So yeah, so that's the framework. 
So, so then moving on from that, sometimes maybe the data they're using might not be quite correct. <laughs> yeah. So my next thing, and you know, people pitch deals to me quite a bit, um, and I always feel people use the wrong numbers. Right. So I call this the wrong numbers. There's, you know, fancy titles for it. But I mean, I, I can talk a lot more about basic real estate economics. There's, there's a whole sort of section on that. But two main areas. People tend to just focus on profit. Now, profit is a fictitious figure as far as I'm concerned. Any accountant will tell you that when you look at the health of a business, you really look at cash flow, not profit. OK, when you are planning a project, you don't do it on the profit figure. It's not a static amount. You must do it on the cash flow and the monthly cash flow, right? Because what happens if you just look at profit, people don't raise enough money for the project because there will never be a time where your income matches the outgoings and you'll always have a pain point. So a project must be managed on cash flow, not profit. So yep. that's what I mean by the wrong numbers. I also find people just look at the profit figure and they never look at, I look at something called IRR, internal rate of return. If I showed you the calculation, it would just look ridiculous. But if I give you a very simple example, if I made 100% return on a project, hallelujah. But if it took me 10 years to get that 100% return, that's only a 10% per yeah. annum return, which I will discount by inflation, right? If I take the net present value of that money, I'll be discounting it by inflation. And if inflation was 10%, which it is now, actually, I made zero return for that year. Do you see what I mean? So yep. you look at IRR, not the profit figure. And, you know, if a project takes three years to do and a project takes one year to do, but the profit figure is the same, I'm going with the one year profit. Right. But I might do some risk management and work out what's the what's the highest probability of the, the profit figure. But, you know, so I find that people look at this profit figure. What they really should be looking at is IRR, because if you look at your profit over the time period, which is what IRR is, you then have a very good benchmark to decide, do I really want to take this risk or shall I just stick my money in the bank? Right now, I can get four and a half percent from Synergy Bank for putting money in there, locking it up for two years. So do I really want to lend it out to a property investor for six percent with all the risks that attach to it? My answer right now is no. So IRR allows you to look at some of the risk-free alternatives. Do I just want to buy a REIT in the market? The REITs are trading at massive discounts to NAV and they're paying eight to 10% dividends. So why don't I just, if I want to play property market, why don't I just buy a REIT? So I find people look at the wrong numbers. They don't look necessarily at alternatives because everyone's so passionate and wants to be doing something and we all get caught up in this furor. I think part of that, certainly the people that I, I, I've worked with, part of that is they've come through perhaps investing in residential and there are there's a lot of education, noise, chat about how to do residential and how to measure residential. And then they bring that that perspective, that lens into commercial and start talking about, well, what's the return on my money? Um, what's the return on the £5,000 I left in the deal? Oh, it's a 1,000%. Isn't that an amazing deal? And how can you compare that with another deal? <laughs> it's so difficult and and, yeah. and and quite frustrating because that's the way that they've been taught how to analyse these projects is how fast can I get my money back out and what's the return on the money I leave in? 
but if you only leave 100 pounds in even if the return is 100 percent, you're only making 100 pounds it's, it's irrelevant really when the project itself could change either way in in the you know in a change yeah. of change yeah. of direction so it, it's really important to have that benchmarking system so you can compare project for project for project for project yeah 100 that's right and i think in this section as well um, i'm also going to add in i find people do their cash flow forecasting really badly or they don't do it at all so this is one thing i do do religiously on a weekly basis I do my three month, six month and 12 month cash flow forecast personally and for each of the businesses, because you've got to work out what your pain points are. And we'll talk about this in the next section when we talk about debt management, because that is really vital at the moment. And one final point I just make on this number section is. A lot of people, especially people that listen to your podcast, I think are, are doing this full time and they are, you know, have multiple properties and do multiple projects. And one thing which is a big builder's trick, never borrow from one project to pay a pain point of another project because that gets you into all sorts of pickles. You're creating your own Ponzi scheme. It never goes well. All right. Even if you think, oh, it's just for a week. It's just for a week. Right? Especially when other people's money are involved. You never do that kind of, of balancing. Builders do it all the time. Um, yeah. And that's why, oh, sorry, the stuff's not arrived yet from the depot. Oh, sorry, can't get your wood. It's because uh, they're yeah. And that's how things go from just maybe one project failing to the whole pack of cards coming down. Yeah, Exactly. Interesting, exactly. on the cash flow, I get a constant 12-month cash flow. So especially if you're taking on a project, you're like, how deep is the hole going to be? Yeah. Yeah. And and because some people think, well, the hole's going to be four hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, but when? <laughs> and is it going to be that much? You know, it's trying to actually work out the day to day, or for me, monthly, because that's really where we tend to get paid or pay people. Where is the deepest part of this hole? And and often I think people don't recognise that. Yeah, okay, it might take X amount over this project, but actually there's some really deep points you need to make sure you cover, and then of course the risks that they go beyond that. Okay, what are we moving on to next, Ashley? So uh, this, that's a really nice segue, actually, into debt management. And um, especially when you go beyond having one or two projects, debt management is hugely important. And this is absolutely, I mean, we're recording this. Um, sorry, I don't know if you mind me saying, but on yeah. the day where the Bank of England are about to do their biggest rate rise um, since Black Friday, um, so 75 basis points up. That is huge if anyone's on floating rate. Or more importantly, if anyone's coming to the end of their fixed expiry and having to redo it yeah. uh, and having to, to refinance. So what I have in the same way that you have a risk matrix. So we talk about the risk matrix earlier. You have a debt matrix and your debt matrix is every mortgage that you have on a spreadsheet and lots of columns. All right. How much is the debt? Who's the bank? Contact details of the bank. Which broker? You know, just to remind yourself which broker. But most important section, what rate are you paying now? What date is the fixed expiry? Uh, what are the early repayment charges? What is your reversionary rate? Um, what is your interest cover? Right? I, how, do you know what ICR is? Um, so the amount of income you have versus what you pay out in your mortgage, one divided by the other creates your interest rate cover. Um, and then your stress test. So your stress test section will well 
It used to be, I've actually just shifted it now. It used to be, I used to stress test for 3%, 5%, 7% and 10% base rates. I've now knocked off the 3% because we're about to hit that today. So now I'm moving to 5, 7, 10 and 12, right? So I think very unlikely we'll get to a 12% base rate, but I want to stress test just to see how messed up my business would get if it ever got that way. Um, And so you always must stress test every one of your portfolio. That's number one. Secondly, fixed expiry dates. I run my business overall, making sure that no more than two fixed rate expiries happen within a six month period. Yeah. And that's because if anyone's doing a fixed rate expiry over the next month, we'll get completely screwed. Right. And so I never want to have pain points where um, too many bad things are happening to me. So I limited it six months. I actually, I, I was considering and I was talking to my board yep. and we were discussing this yesterday. I might actually move that to a 12 month period. So I will never have more than two fixed expiries within a 12 month period, just because let's say the next two years are going to be interest rate painful. And then the final one, which is one, I, it kind of raised a few eyebrows before, but um, personal guarantee limits. I actually set a personal guarantee limit and this anyone operating in commercial property, especially at the moment. And I can talk about why I think commercial values are going to come down um, over the next couple of years. But personal guarantee limits are so important because you, you just think, oh, because I've only got 60 percent LTV or 70 percent LTV, I'm protected. But the bank will get their money first. But if you're guaranteeing it and suddenly you're in negative equity, you know, there could be some pain points there. And so I set a personal guarantee limit on it. And I do it on the basis of property prices falling by 50%. And then what is my liability? So what is my personal guarantee liability? And some in some properties, you don't have a PG on it at all. But PG management, I think, is really important in stress times. You don't need to do it like every day. It's just at least do the exercise once to work out what could happen yeah so as, as your as your business is growing yeah. you get the ability to maybe start putting things in different trays and, and trying to ring fence them mm-hmm. and i remember in 2008 and we were talking just earlier on i was saying about businesses spectacularly imploding and i remember one particular local investment company to me who had a fantastic portfolio um, a trading business good trading business lots of commercial stock, some sites for developing houses, all sorts of things. And in the blink of an eye, it all went. And that was just because all those trees were interlinked. There was no separation. And although they had separate companies, there were still cross-company guarantees. There was still all that stuff going on. And actually, it was all really just a mirage, I think, that the, um, the owners had got to this point where they thought, no, no, we're covered. At least I'm, I'm making that assumption. We're covered. It's okay. We've got these in separate companies. That's going to do. That's going to reduce that risk. That's going to reduce that risk. But then, unfortunately, the whole pack of cards came down because they they had interlinked them too much. But when you're getting started, that's really difficult, especially if you only got one property. How do I separate this out? You know, and and if you're trying to gear to grow the business, so for me, when I when I was growing initially, we would add the value to the commercial property. Um, increase the rent, get it revalued, and use that 
to leverage the next one. But of course, in doing so, you're providing security over both. So, so then they're still interlinked. But what we've started to do now is take the the next property and put it completely separately, and then try and build up another sort of arm so that I don't want to lose momentum completely, but also I need to make sure that we're starting to put those into new containers, as it were, so that these things don't, um, if everything should happen or something bad should happen in one business, it's not going to affect you overall. Mm. I have a slight issue with um, taking a valuation on a property that is too far away from the bricks and mortar valuation. So taking mm. a valuation on a property based on the income um, you know, people always saying, oh, this is a money out deal, 100% money out deal. That means what you're doing is you're actually taking money out based on the income that that property is generating. Um, and I was having this discussion with an HMO operator who basically does this two, three times a year. And I was like, yeah, but what happens if in your area suddenly all HMO licenses are removed? And the risk is then you go back to bricks and mortar valuation and you're 40% away from the bricks and mortar valuation on 25 properties. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and that's, that's the issue with doing too much of that. I completely yeah. understand when you're starting out, but you have to understand the risks of doing that when you're too far away from the bricks and mortar valuation. But, yeah. Okay, yeah. great. What one are we moving on to next? Project management. Yeah. Key, key man documents. Key man um, documents. So yeah. that's my term. It's just it, it's it's uh, it's the really boring bits. Okay. So this, this this isn't just key man insurance. So this is I, no. I remember talking to you about. It, it's quite interesting. Your the processes you go through to make sure that should anything happen, yeah, we've got all these things covered. Yeah. Because a lot of us are one man bats. Right? Yeah. yeah. I yes, I have a portfolio. I have lots of different businesses with um, partners. But I'm a one-man band. I have no employees. So what happens if something happens to me? How does someone pick it up? Now, I'm very anal about this, all right? And that's just because I'm, I'm you know, I, I've been taught this. This is my, my investment banker coming out. But there's very simple ways of doing it. So start off, asset schedule. I keep mine on an Excel spreadsheet. Every single worksheet is a different property. On that property are all the contact details, everything to do it down to who the caretaker is, who this, that and the other are. All the financial details and a very brief cash flow forecast and, and income stuff. So all the details of that property are there on the, of my whole portfolio are there. I then have a consolidated sheet so I can see the whole thing. That's where I keep my debt matrix. It's where I also keep my risk matrix all on Excel. It's very simple. I really try and keep a paper trail of every transaction. It, it really helps with doing your accounts. Never use your personal bank account, by the way. Um, but try and make sure everything has a paper trail or, I mean, we have email now. So everything's got an email trail. And once you have an email trail and someone has access to your email, they can pretty much follow a conversation. Um, but what I keep is a, is a day book. So rather than keeping a to-do list, the problem with keeping a to-do list is once you scrub it out, one month later, it's like, did I do that or not? You know, whatever. So I keep, and this, like any politician or any responsible officer or someone who sits on a board will keep minutes on a daily basis. This is what I've done today. Remind myself of the conversation, remind myself of, um, it's almost like keep, keeping a diary, but it, it's not a long extensive thing. It's literally bullet points, right? This is why I made this decision. I chose O2, you know, yesterday I was just doing my father's phone. 
I chose O2 because three didn't have Thailand in the in the international thing. All right. So you just keep very short minutes like that. I call it my day book. I, you know, I have hundreds of these things. They probably last me two, three months, each one of them. But it means I can refer back to anything. Really useful when I'm doing my accounts because I write in there every bill I pay, every person I pay and how much. And when I'm doing my accounts, it's like, oh, yeah, what is that payment I made? I can refer back to my day book and I know exactly what it is. So it's just a good discipline to get into. So it's rather it's a done book rather than a to do list. Mm -hmm. My to do list is kept on like scraps of paper or post-it notes, which if you looked at my desk right now, you'd see it's covered in post-it notes. But the day book is kind of the religious like what I've done. And I think that's really important as you get more and more complex in your business. I keep board minutes on a monthly basis for each of the individual uh, businesses. Again, I do this on a spreadsheet. It's literally, you know, we agreed this, we agreed this, we looked at this proposal, see attached document. Um, We agreed this, who's responsible for doing this? This is the action points for the next month on this project. Both people sign it. Once a quarter, I will send all this stuff to my lawyer. He never reads it. It just sits with my lawyer. But if something happens to me, my executors or my people who have my power of attorney can pick this up and it's almost like a manual to run the business, right? They know what it is, um, that, you know, they know where to take it. So I think that's really important as you want to professionalize your business is to work out what happens if something happens to you. How can people pick it up? Where do people find all this information? And sometimes they need to do it quickly. Right. Yeah, and, right. and a lot of couples I work with, they're they are doing this business. One of their main motivators is the kids. Yeah. So, you know, first off, if something happens, the kids are not old enough. So, how are you managing that so that things get looked after? And what I really liked about what you were saying was um, when you have passwords or specific accounts and all these different things, is well, actually, if something happened, how can anybody access all this? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's what you're that's what you're sending off to your to your lawyer once a month. Just any updates, any changes you've made. So, if something happens, yeah, it can be picked up by um, the power of attorney or your accountants, whoever it is that you've instructed mm-hmm. to look after things. Should something happen, but I think a lot of people will say, "Yeah, I'll make the accountant the power of attorney." They might get that far, but they don't actually think of the practicalities of, well, actually, what can they do? What can they access? Probably not a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, this all goes into, you know, you must have a power of attorney, especially when you have other people's money in, in a project. Um, must make a will. Um, really important. Uh, I, I find a lot of people just go, oh, I don't really like my accounts. I just basically take a load of paperwork and throw it at my accountant. You've got to remember you are responsible for your accounts. You are responsible to HMRC. Their professional indemnity insurance only goes so far. You really need to do spend a bit of time on accounts. It's my least favorite thing, by the way. Yeah. I have my cousin comes to my house for three days once a year, and we do everything. We literally do everything. It all goes on to QuickBooks, then all goes to the accountant. But yeah, I, that's my most painful bit. Um, but I suppose in this, it's also good. You know, you talk about family and you talk about kids. And my kids are now. I've, I've got a 20-year-old, 19 and 16, and they're starting to take an interest in why I lock myself away in my office most of the day. And so they do have access to the stuff. I'm starting to teach them bits and pieces, but I think it's important to goal set 
I, you know, strategy and goal set. And that's a whole different thing. But, you know, just from my perspective, I have a long term plan, a five year plan, and the five year plans broken into a one year plan. And that one year plan, I break down into three monthly blocks. Right. So it, it's just all about goal setting and share that plan with whoever you're building your business for. Right. So they, they're part of that plan and they can see what, what, what you're doing. But that's an aside. That's not really part of this whole governance conversation. But that's just a, an important thing about if you are building this for your children, get them involved as early as possible. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my kids who are now 17, 15, 13, or two years apart, they, they've gone from the quite interested in poking around and looking at what dad's doing to not really interested right <laughs> now. Um, but I'm hoping that, that that phase will go and they will get, <laughs> yeah. get back to the being interested again. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm definitely gone from dad knows everything to dad knows nothing stage at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because two of my kids are now at, Exeter University so all the internships they've done with me in the summer holidays and I, I, I have them and you know some of their friends so we maybe have 10 people doing internships in the summer and they're now oh you know they charge 200 pounds a week do you know and that doesn't include bills it's much cheaper in Nottingham it's much cheaper in Manchester <laughs> you know, so they're starting to really get it now that they're living as one of the yeah. tenants so to speak but yeah I hope you've really enjoyed that insightful conversation so far. Stay tuned for the next instalment where we'll be talking about governance, information provenance, where's information coming from, the use of trial runs and regulatory blind spots where business owners have a bit of a scotoma as to what's actually relevant for their business. All excellent insights from Natalie on this episode and it'll make a big difference to our business. I hope it will to yours. One thing I'm so pleased about CPI is the network of investors we're building, which includes amazing people like Natalie, who can bring knowledge to all of us to help us build and defend our businesses. If you'd like to learn more about how you can join our network and benefit from lots of resources and knowledge, then check out the Get In The Swim membership link found in the show notes. See you on part two. I hope you're enjoying the content delivered on the CPI podcast. Even though it's free to listen to, it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode. Did you know that by leaving a positive written review, you, yes, you will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast. And that's really important because by reaching a wider audience, it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week. For some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be a first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.